John chapter 2. John chapter 2 and our passage for today will be verses 13 through 22. Taking notes, the title of our sermon will be Jesus Cleanses the Temple. Trying to get you to get us going. I'm going to end up asking a a lot of questions that uh, I'm going to assume the answers or you can just kind of assume or um, answer to yourself. But the first question I wanted to ask to kind of wrap our minds around some of the things that we're going to talk about today is uh, how many people are are weird like me and and like to to clean. Um, I spent a good amount of my time on Memorial Day, had the day off. My family went to uh, the beach with some other friends and family of ours, and and I spent the time at my house either studying for the sermon or cleaning the house, cleansing things, sanitizing everywhere, and and just kind of spent spent a lot of the time doing that. And uh, I, I like it for whatever reason. I don't know why. It's, I'm kind of weird like that. But um, with little ones, it's, it's kind of hard to, to keep a house clean, right? I mean, it's, it's difficult to do that. Food, drinks, other unmentionable things end up on the floors, the walls, the ceilings, in couches, under beds, uh, all over the place. Whether it's done intentionally or, or, or unintentionally, there's, there's, there's stuff everywhere. And the sad part about it is it doesn't matter how well you clean or how often you do it, the house will always get dirty again. Now, for some of you, uh, you'll, you'll just want to give up and, and, you know, not clean or hire someone to clean. But if you're weird like me, right, you just keep doing it and, and uh, you'll, you'll drive yourself insane uh, to do that. Now, I mentioned that because with our passage today, there's some cleansing of the temple going on by, from Jesus. But he was doing a different kind of, of cleansing and cleaning in the temple. So today, what we're going to look at is the the zeal that Jesus had for the dwelling place of God, the response that was had by the disciples as well as the Jews, and then we will kind of round out and conclude our time doing some reflection on what was talked about as well as uh, some of the applications that we can take from this discussion today. So with that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and give us our sermon summary, and it should yeah, there we go. It should be up on the board uh, or on the, on the monitor there. Uh, the sermon summary is this. Am I consumed with the zeal uh, for God's dwelling place? Am I consumed with zeal for God's dwelling place? That is the, the overall thought. That's the question that's going to keep coming up. That's the question we should be asking ourselves as we read through this passage. And, and we'll get into that as we, as we go. So let me go ahead and read our passage Uh, fully and then we'll kind of break it down and walk through it some and we'll pray that God blesses his word so starting in verse 13 it says this the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But as he was speaking about the temple of, uh, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask that God blesses his word. Dear Holy Father, we come to you once again just thankful for this day that you have set apart for us to worship you as a body. Uh, we come together and set aside the cares of the world and, and all the things that um, seek to pull our attention away from you. And, and we come together, as you have commanded, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that we have done so in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've given us through song, through prayer, through the reading of your word, and now through the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, I pray that the time spent this week is, is honoring to you, that your people hear your voice and they follow, that your spirit does his work that he uh, has, has been sent to do among your people. That's to convict the world of sin, to uh, conform us into the image of the Son, and to encourage us as we go through the trials and, and uh, struggles of this life. That is our prayer today, Lord, and we just ask that you do these things. Uh, as your word has said, it will not return to you void, and that um, we just enjoy the good things that you have in store for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so first we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. And I wanted to kind of uh, paint a picture for us so we know where, we at, where, where we are with this passage. So if we kind of go back to chapter, or chapter 2, the verses 1 through 12, there was the feast, the wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turned the water to wine. Then he makes his way up to Capernaum, and then a few days later, they make their way um, to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover is right around the corner. Jesus and his disciples have made their way to Jerusalem, and now they're uh, entering the temple. As they get there, they see all these uh, sacrificial animals being sold. They see money being exchanged. Uh, for local currency, and all this is going on within the temple walls. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the layout of the, the temple here, this was the second temple. It was called Herod's Temple um, that, was, that was being constructed. It was actually in the process. It had been, had been being constructed for the last 46 years is what our passage tells us. Uh, but this is a, a, um, a multi-layered um, uh, property, a site. So what we, what we see here is that there's a... If you think of a, a fortified city, there's a, a wall that encompasses a, a town. And what we, what we know of this area is that it, it encompasses about 35 acres. So it's a huge exterior wall. Then there's a, a large courtyard. Uh, and then there's other walls and, and rooms and stuff. Then there's courtyards inside of there. Then there's another separation. And then there's an inner courtyard. Then there's the actual temple. So there's multiple layers multiple gates to get into these different spots, but we just know that it's a huge, huge uh, location. Think of probably the size of this entire block from Stockbauer to, to Sam Houston, like a, a huge area uh, that these people in, but there's multiple layers. Now that outer court, the first place that you enter where it's the largest area is the area where the Gentiles who had converted to uh, Judaism, where they worshiped, where they offer their sacrifices and prayers. This was the largest area. But as you came in further, there was the, the court of women, the court of Israel, and then the smallest court was the court of the priest, and then the holy place where the temple, the priest would go in and offer their sacrifices. So this is kind of the, the layout of the, the land uh, that was there and where these um, sacrificial animals, these uh, money changers, they're in this outer court, this court, this, um, court of the Gentiles. This is where 
Jesus enters in and he sees all, these, all this going on. This was an area that was designated or designed or commanded to be a place of worship, like I said earlier, for the Gentiles. They were supposed to, since they weren't Jews by, by birth, uh, they weren't ethnic Jews, this was a place that they had freedom to worship God, to offer these sacrifices and prayers uh, as they made their pilgrimage into town, and it had been turned into this marketplace. There was all these things being sold, money being exchanged. Uh, so Jesus, seeing all this, there was, there was issues that he took with that. Now, with what I've come to understand from this passage is these, these animals being sold, the, the money being exchanged, this was actually a, a standard process or practice in this day. What we have to remember is that the Jews had spread out all over the land, all over the world, and every year during the Passover, they would make their pilgrimage back to the temple to offer their sacrifices. Now, if you imagine trying to travel hundreds of miles, 50 miles with a, your firstborn lamb, cattle, uh, doves, or whatever the, the animal is, trying to get that animal from your home to this temple safely and, and remain uh, it being free from being ate by a, a wild animal, breaking its leg along the way, things like that, stuff like that would come up. So there was this practice that was given or that was kind of uh, understood to be acceptable, if you will, as an alternative uh, for those who were traveling these long distances that had different currencies uh, when offering their temple tax. There was these things that were kind of set in place to allow those who were traveling longer distance, if there was uh, any issues with them offering their animals for sacrifice or the, the money that they had, wasn't a valid form of, of offering. They had this option for them. Now this was thought to have been taking place outside the temple walls, which wouldn't have profaned the actual temple courts. Uh, but sometime between when this practice started and to our day-to-day, -day, it had infiltrated the place of worship. And that's where we get our problem uh, first and foremost. Uh, but as, as I was reading, and as if you continue to read in John, and as we continue to go through the book of John, this is something that you will see that, as I've studied, uh, scholars and historians would agree upon, is that this was actually the first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. Uh, there was actually twice that we have in recorded history uh, through the Gospels that the temple was actually cleansed. Uh, and I, and I, I didn't quite see that at first, but as we see from our uh, from the book of John, uh, Jesus goes from this feast at Cana, he comes to the temple and he cleanses it. And then there's actually two more, at least two more instances of Passover feast, uh, you know, years later that we see that Jesus partakes in the Passover, which is in John chapter 6, which is later, and then John chapter 11. So it is believed that this was the first time that Jesus actually cleansed the temple. Uh, also due to the language that's used here, uh, Jesus says that it's a house of trade, in the synoptic gospels, which are known, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in those gospels, he uses stronger language. He says, uh, you have taken my father's house, and that's supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. So it's thought that there was this downward spiral of perversion and a loss of reverence for, for the house of God from the time that he cleansed the temple here until it's mentioned in Matthew uh, 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. Uh, so if y'all have any questions about that, we can definitely talk about it later. But I think one of the bigger points that we see to kind of verify that is in those gospel accounts, we see that this is right before the triumphal entry, uh, or I'm sorry, the triumphal entry happens. 
Then he cleanses the temple, and then it's his crucifixion shortly thereafter. Uh, in our passage here, we see that there's a Passover. He cleanses the temple. Then there's other Passover. So it tends to make us believe that this was a, a separate uh, incident. So that's kind of the, the outset of our passage. Where we get today is, is there's this, there, they go down there to the, to the temple for Passover, uh, he gets in, and there's this defaming and uh, blaspheming of, of God's holy place. Um, so let's, with that in mind, let's look at the zeal of Jesus and why he wanted to cleanse this temple, why this was so upsetting to him. Let's look at why he was zealous for the Father's house, uh, why his, his heart and his conviction and his love for the Father uh, played out in this way. So in, in this passage here, what we see with, the, um, with him driving out um, the, the money changers and the sheep and the oxen and these, these, um, the people that are, that are selling these things, he fashioned this whip of cords and he drove them out, dumped out the money, flipped over tables. And, and as, as I was reading this, it kind of, it, it, I tried to make it personal as far as seeing what Jesus did and seeing how I typically react in certain situations. And it was pretty amazing that the disciples' reaction to what Jesus was doing as he drove out all these people from the temple, it actually drove them to the scriptures. Uh, what we see in, the, in our passage is it says in, in verse 17, as this was going on, as the disciples saw Jesus driving these people out of the temple, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right? They, they, that's, what, that's the picture that they got from Jesus driving these people out, popping the whip, turning over tables, pouring out the money that were on these money, money changer tables. And it kind of made me, it, 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 it gave me some pause. It, it actually kind of hit me between the eyes, gave me a gut punch, whatever you want to call it. Um, because I think about the way that my wrath or my anger, my zeal plays out in my interactions with my family, with my loved ones, with other church members. Uh, I can't think of the last time I was angry. I was zealous about something for God or, or whatever, and it drove the person who saw me do this to the scriptures, right? I, I can't think of a time that's ever happened, uh, but it, it just reminded me of, of a, a, a display of righteous anger, right? When, when Jesus displayed this righteous anger by fashioning this cord of whips, turning over tables, uh, dumping out their money, uh, kicking all these animals and people out of the temple courts, that's the response that his disciples had to him doing these things. You know, I, personally, I get, I get, there's a couple of things that really frustrate me. Uh, one of them being a pastor, when I see uh, pastors, uh, you know, with this prosperity gospel, when they teach false teachings and different things that pull the sheep away from the, the true word of God, I get, I get furious. It really aggravates me when I, when I see those things, when I see them on Facebook or when I hear about people talking about things. It, it's something that really, really hurts, it, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it makes me furious when I hear about it. But I can't always say that my response to that zeal that I have for God's word and for his people uh, plays out in the, in the fashion that it should. I can't say that it is always righteous anger, that, that, I'm, that zeal for my father's house consumes me. Also thinking about it with my kids, uh, I'd like to say that every time that they disobey me, that my anger is because I'm zealous for the Lord and his law. Uh, but typically what it turns out is I've set the rules and you've broken my law and I get angry because of that. 
Um, but that's, that's not what we're called to, right? That's not righteous anger. That's, that's self-righteous anger. But when I see what Jesus did here, that pointed back to scripture. That, that pointed back to righteousness. It was a righteous act that God did. Kind of on that, on that line of, of um, thinking about the, the discipline that I offer to my children and, and the, the way that that is supposed to um, take place, it is supposed to be gospel-focused. It's supposed to be rooted in God's law and how they've broken God's law and how I'm a, a minister of God's justice by disciplining them and pointing them back to Christ. Uh, that's what I'm called to do, but it often doesn't play out that way, unfortunately. Um, but something I want to encourage you with that I've heard uh, when it comes to, to parenting and for us as fathers, first and foremost, is that I believe that a, a large influence on, on the way that we view God is based upon our, our relationship with, with our earthly father, the way our earthly father interacts with us. If, if me as an earthly father have laid down rules and, and don't break them and, and uh, seem tyrannical, not, not compassionate, loving, and zealous for God's law, that's the type of picture I'm painting for our Heavenly Father. Uh, but if I've been the type of father who is zealous for God's law and, and compassionate, but also loving, and, and my anger is righteous, I've, I've painted a, a better picture of who God is uh, for my children. And that points them back to Scripture, not, not the former, but the latter. Uh, so that's just something that, that I kind of thought about um, with that. So this, this anger that, that Jesus um, exhibited, it was, a, it was a righteous anger. His wrath that he showed by pouring out the money, by turning over tables, by whipping uh, the, and driving out the animals, this was a, a righteous anger. And I think we tend to think of anger in a, in a negative light, that it is just, it's just sin. But scripture tells us clearly, in your anger, do not sin. Right? There, there is a way to be angry, uh, to be um, full of wrath even that is righteous Jesus gives us that example here in our passage today um, it, but that goes back to what is our intention where is our heart in, in um, what are we being zealous for so what we see with, with Jesus and his disciples is that there was this um, the sign was given uh, God's glory was shown through Jesus' uh, zeal for his father's house it pointed the disciples back to the scriptures. And the, the specific scripture that, they, that is quoted here, zeal for your house will consume me, is actually found in Psalm 69. Uh, that's where this passage is about the zeal for your father's, zeal, excuse me, zeal for your house will consume me. So as we think about that, we think about our anger, the way that we respond to God's law being broken, the, the worship of God in, in his house, I think the question that we must ask ourselves first before looking at others is, is looking inside of us and asking ourselves, are we consumed with zeal for God's dwelling place? Is, is that something that drives us or are we driven by our own personal, um, personal preferences? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at verses 18 through 22. We, we've seen Jesus' zeal. We've seen his interaction with his people. We've seen how his disciples responded to his zeal, to this, um, the wrath being displayed, the anger being displayed uh, for the, the, the zeal that, that consumed him for his father's house. But let's look at the Jewish response to this. Uh, let me go ahead and reread verses 18 through 22, and then we'll talk about it. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So what we see the Jewish response or the, the, the Jewish authorities, uh, their response to what Jesus was saying was, what sign do you have for doing these things? Or what, who gives you the right to tell us what to do? Who gives you the right to tell us how we are to worship God? Now, the, the ironic thing, the humorous thing, if you will, uh, with this is that the disciples saw what authority that was. He was fulfilling scripture by having zeal for the father's house. But this just kind of flew right over their head. These men, these, these Jews that were responsible for the, the care and taking of God's temple had been so consumed with what they had made of the father's house that they now, excuse me, that now the things that the father had actually commanded of them had gone by the wayside. These people had allowed traditions to trump truth, right? Jesus told, tells us later in the book of John that he is looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth, not in spirit and in tradition, right? They had laid out these things that worked for them, uh, and, and they continued down that path which led them astray, but Jesus is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. These men were not consumed with truth, with zeal for the Father's house. Psalm 119.11 says this, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And when we think about the Jews, when we think about ourselves, when we think about Jesus, the disciples in this passage, who was treasuring God's word in their heart? I think for the Jews, that, that answer is no, they didn't. They did not treasure God's word in their heart. When we look at Jesus and the, the disciples, we, we can say, yes, they treasured God's word in their heart. That the actions of Jesus pointed the disciples back to God's word. It was treasured in their heart but we must ask ourselves today do you treasure God's word in your heart is it of utmost importance does zeal for the father's house consume you are we truly treasuring we treasure a lot of things in this life our families our our careers um, our health um, our financial stability, a lot of things get treasured in our life. We'll sacrifice for many things in this life. But is God's word treasured in our heart? Do we have zeal for the Father's dwelling place? Now, many folks have many different ideas. I mean, you can go to any church, um, here, even just here in Victoria today, and see many different styles of what we would call the, the worship service. Uh, and, and a lot of people have their own idea of how that should go. But we are a church that, that would hold to a, a principle that's called the regulative principle of worship. Now, it's just a fancy way of saying the Bible regulates the way we worship. It's just a fancy way of saying that. that people like putting terms on things and making them sound fancy. But really, the Bible regulates the way we are to worship. That, that's what we hold to. If the Bible says it, 
we do it. If the Bible forbids it, we don't do it. That, that's, that's, the, that's the layout, right? There's churches that kind of take a, I don't even want to call it a freedom with that, but they, they kind of push that to the side and uh, do a lot of crazy things during their church service. But God has given us parameters upon which we are to worship him. And we see that through the Old Testament. We see it today. We are to have the reading of the word. We are to pray. We are to sing songs of praise. And we are to preach from the word. These are things that are commanded of us in our worship service. Not only those things, we are also to uh, perform the ordinances, right? The the Lord's Supper, we partake of this once a month. Uh, We are to perform baptisms for professing believers. These are ordinances that the church has has, uh, been given. And we do the baptisms in the, in the presence of our, of our body, right? We do this typically on Sunday mornings. This is one of the things that, that God has commanded us to how, how to worship him. When, when God saves someone, all of us should be together celebrating as they do the symbolic um, dipping into the water and coming out that, that old man has died. What God has already done, we are just recognizing. And, and they are making that public profession that they are now, they were lost and now they are found. These are things that God has commanded of us. And and when we do things that God has commanded us to do, he has promised to do things in response to those things, right? If we walk in light of what he's done, it, he continues to soften our heart. He sanctifies us. He renews our mind. He, he does all the things in his word that he has told us. If we truly believe that that's who he is and what he has done, then we follow what his word says. We trust it. So that's something that, that we do here at, at our church. Um, like I said, there's any others that do it as well, but just specifically, that's, that's the conviction that we hold to uh, at our church, that we are to do these things in a manner that, that's worthy of the calling that we have that is done in spirit and in truth. Now, that kind of gets us to, to a, I don't want to say a stopping point, but those are kind of the big ideas that I wanted to pull out of our passage for today. These are things that the, the zeal for the Father, how this, how anger, God, Jesus' anger was righteous. It pointed his disciples to scripture. Um, he cleansed the temple and, and he did so sinlessly uh, that, that we are to worship God properly and that those who were left in charge of the temple had lost sight of that. These are all things that, that should, should, um, should shake us. They should, they should bring about a, a conviction and a desire to be introspective and say, well, what are we doing in response to what God has said in his word? So with that in mind, I want to kind of, um, as we reflect in our portion of reflection, I want to ask a couple of questions. There's going to be four questions that I think that are um, important to our discussion today. So the first one is kind of going back to the initial uh, verses when Jesus kicked the, um, kicked everybody out of the temple, right? That was in there. Uh, so with, with that in mind, when, when Jesus did this, when he knocked all these people out of the temple, turned over tables, poured out their money, uh, kicked all the animals out even. When we look at what, what happened then, right, and we try to take this principle, this, this event, and apply it to today, does that, since it was sinful when they did it then, is it sinful now for churches because uh, I'm trying to, this is how I made these connections, right? If, if it was sinful then, are, what, what's the modern day example of us turning God's house into a house of trade? What would be the modern day example of that? Is it if we're using, uh, if we have a coffee shop or a bookstore in a church or even a, a gift shop? Or are those, would those be the equivalent to what we see in the Old Testament, right? Or in, in the, excuse me, in 
here in the gospel, right? Is that the equivalent? Are they one for one? Are they apples to apples? Uh, I, that, that question came to my mind because I'm like, well, is it, is it a sinful act inherently? Is it just completely forbidden? And I think, that I, I think I have the answer. And I think my answer is as good as it gets. Wow. Okay. But, but this is an answer that I love to give when I'm posed with questions about questionable things. And, and like I said, I feel like it's a great answer. So my answer for this is it depends. It depends, right? I mean, it, I, I think this... If we think about the church buildings today, there was not church buildings like we have today 2,000 years ago, right? We didn't, they didn't have Sunday school, and they didn't have, a lot of, a lot of churches were home churches, right? They just, they met together in somebody's home, and they worshiped that way. Uh, they had the temple here, but New Testament church, they didn't have a lot of churches. So now we have AC, we have lights, we have parking lots, uh, we have classrooms. There, there's a lot of differences, a lot of variables to consider. So for me to just say one for one, no, you, you, just, you just cannot do this at all within the church building, uh, I don't think that would be fair to what was going on in our passage. Now, the issue that we had in our passage today was that those things infiltrated the worship service. Right now, if we had a table set up in the middle of service and we're like, you know, we got these prayer shawls and we got this holy water and we got, you know, that's absolutely wrong. There, there's no question that that's an issue. Uh, but if someone's got a coffee shop set up outside of the, the worship service, is that wrong? I don't know. I, don't, I think it depends on, on the, the intent of that, that ministry or whatever you want to call it. That, 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 uh, are they making money off of it, you know, to the detriment of the people? Are they giving coffee away like we do? Uh, the bookstore, do they offer free books? Do they sell them above retail? Do they sell them below cost? I think there's just too many things to consider to just say, if they're happening in the church building outside of the, the time of worship, I don't believe that it, it qualifies to what we were talking about in our passage today. So it depends, right? It just, it, it just depends. But regardless, regardless of what happens, anything that we do during our time of worship should never diminish the worship of God or distract from the worship of God, regardless of what it is, right? So if, though, if, you, can, if you can't check off on those boxes, it's, 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 not, it's not allowed. It's, it's 100% unpermissible. Now, like I said, we have parameters around our worship service, but if it's going on in the church building, outside of that, there's, there's, some, there's some wiggle room there. Question two. Did Jesus sin in his actions, right? As he fashioned this whip of cords and was popping potentially people even with this whip, turning over tables, it, it, would, it would seem sinful for if I had a table set up and somebody took my jar of coins and just dumped them out in front of me. It would kind of seem kind of disrespectful from my perspective. So when we think of those things, was that a, a sinful act, what, what, excuse me, what Jesus did? Well, we would say the answer is no, right? He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, we see from Scripture Jesus did not sin. Once again, the disciples, it, it drove them to Scripture, seeing Jesus' um, righteous anger for the Father's house. Question three, why didn't, just, why didn't Jesus, in verse, um, in verse 19, why didn't Jesus explicitly say destroy this body instead of this temple why did he use that language? it would have made it a lot more easier for everyone to understand 
what he was talking about. Like, why didn't he just say that? And I, I think our passage answers that, uh, but I want to take that as well as a potential implication from our passage, from what we see from Scripture as a whole, and say, well, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he say just destroy this body instead of this temple? Well, I, I believe Jesus, or the, the, excuse me, the Apostle John makes this clear in his passage by he didn't even let the disciples know that's what he meant, right? We see in verse 22 that it was after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that that's what he was talking about, right? So he didn't, even, he didn't let anyone know. The, the intention wasn't to let them know right then and there. Uh, they were, that was to be revealed to them. But from the Jews' perspective, those, author, those in authority, why didn't he tell them? Well, I think it's also very clear uh, with, the, with the Jewish leaders is even if, even if Jesus had told them all truth, revealed all things to them, they had cold, dead hearts that, that were hardened by their sin, it wouldn't have mattered what he did. He, he rose from the dead, and that still wasn't enough to convince them, right? So had he even said, hey, this, destroy this body, and I'll raise it up in three days, it wouldn't have even mattered to them. So we could say that's why he didn't say that. It wouldn't have mattered either way. He had a purpose in him saying that, but even if, even if he had said it differently, it, it wouldn't have mattered uh, to, to the Jews. So for the final question, I wanted to kind of give a little preface to it at first and, and then ask the question. Uh, we, we kind of heard in some of the songs, um, and, and I think this, this kind of helps round out our time, but John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It goes on to tell us that he dwelt among his people. By the end of, uh, in John 19, we see that that dwelling that temple was destroyed by John 20 the excuse me the temple was raised to newness of life now because of this we also see in scripture that that God no longer dwells in buildings built by human hands but he dwells in his people right he has come to reside within his people and this leads us to our our final question right if if we are God's dwelling place, those who have been purchased by his blood, those who have been raised to newness of life, and, and it's us who tend to get zealous about all things, uh, preference, or even uh, the, the things that are, that are holy in the sight of God, I think the first question we must ask ourselves before we go outside is, is, is inside. Am I consumed with zeal for God's dwelling place? God has come to make his dwelling within me. Am I zealous for that, will I make a cord of whips and cleanse this temple of all wickedness and vileness that defiles me? Will I love the things that God loves? Will I hate the things that God hates? Will I treasure his word in my heart that I may not sin against him? That is a question that we must all ask ourselves. I mean, it's easy to point to to things on the outside and say, well, I would have never done that, but what about here? We, we always make exceptions for ourselves. Well, you know, you just don't understand. I was hungry. I was having a bad day. My, my wife was mad at me. My kids were mad at me. I had a long day at work. We, we'll give ourselves 101 excuses to sin, but, but, but what, ultimately what it is, it, it's sinful. It's all, it's, it's sin, right? There is no excuse good enough for us to not obey God. Are we going to be people who are zealous for God's dwelling place, right? In, in 1 Corinthians, we're told that we were purchased with a price and we are to glorify God in, his, in our bodies. 
So as we close, I think it, those who are, who are God's people, those who are his sheep, they hear his voice, right? That's what Jesus tells us in John 10. My sheep know my voice. They hear it and they follow me. If you hear God's voice today, if you feel the weight of your own sin bearing down on you, there should be one question that we ask ourselves now. If we think about this temple and the zeal that we should have for this temple, hearing God's word and the zeal that he had and all the things that he has done, the question we should ask ourselves is, well, what, what do I do now? What, what should I do? What should I do moving forward? Now that I know that this is true, what should I do now? Well, I believe that is simple, and it is an answer uh, that we can all answer clearly, plainly, um, and, and it's, it's, it's simple. There, there's no two ways about it. What we are commanded to do, which we know that we have sinned against God in, in any form or fashion or in every way, we are to repent. We are to repent of those sins for all the things that we've done against God's law and believe in the gospel. We're to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that the zeal of Jesus Christ sent him to the cross to demonstrate his love for the unrighteous and the ungodly, to reconcile us to God, to set us free from the bondage of sin that we put ourselves in. Now, I want to close with a passage of scripture that I'm going to change some words around to make it personal for us. Uh, this is Paul speaking to Timothy in his first letter in chapter 1, and he's speaking of himself, but I do believe this is something that we can use to speak of ourselves as well. Paul was saved the same exact way that every single believer was ever saved, by the Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God changed his heart, and now he walked in newness of life. But this, this passage, I believe, is, is a good passage for us to meditate upon and think about it personally. It was, it was true for Paul. It's, it's true for us as well for those of us who are in Christ. So listen to this. this starting in verse 12 through verse 17. Like I said, I'm going to make this, make this personal. It says, You received mercy because you had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for you with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom you are the foremost, but you receive mercy for this reason. Listen to this. That in you as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray.